0: Hi everyone, it's Emmett here. Before we start today's podcast, I'm excited to announce our first ever Stock Club Live podcast, which will be taking place in Dublin's Herbert Park Hotel on November 23rd, so just under three weeks away. I'll be joined on the night by Anne-Marie, Rory and Mike to talk about what we all learned in the brutal year that has been 2022, and to share some of our bold predictions and favourite stocks for 2023. We'll be making a full announcement about this next week, but we're giving our loyal Stock Club listeners the first opportunity to get tickets, which are limited to just 100. Tickets are available right now through the link in the description at a price of 20 euro each, which includes a couple of free drinks at the bar. It should be a great night and one I'm really looking forward to, so any listeners in Dublin or the surrounding area don't miss out. And for anyone listening from further afield, don't worry, we'll be planning more Stock Club events in 2023 outside of Dublin and even outside of Ireland so watch this space Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. This week, we're bringing you another interview with one of the leading minds in the worlds of technology and stock investing. Brett Winton holds a very enviable title of Chief Futurist at ARK Invest. As Chief Futurist, Brett drives ARC's long-term forecast across convergent technologies, economies and asset classes, helping ARC to forecast the impact of disruptive innovation on public and private equities. A few weeks ago, Emmett sat down with Brett to chat about the future and what it might hold in terms of technological innovation. Of course, of course, Emmett also managed to get Brett's five favorite stock picks at the moment, a couple of which are already in the Horizon portfolio. Normal service will resume at Stock Club next week,
2: but for now, sit back and let Emmett and Brett take you to the not so distant future.
0: Brett Winton, Chief Futurist at ARK Invest. Welcome to Stock Club. I'm particularly excited about this conversation. But before we dive into all things future, could you spend a few minutes on your past and tell me about your professional journey to this point?
2: Sure. Um, I'm educated as a mechanical engineer at MIT. Uh, and after you know a series of unfortunate events, including um, doing business development in the RFID space, I ended up operating in what was kind of an uh, internal think tank inside a large fund manager, like Bernstein. And so that was called Research and Strategic Change. And did projects on carbon dioxide regulation and reformation of financial services. So big structural changes, many of them technology inflected that cut across sectors. And then uh, from 2014, I've been um, directing the research team at Art Invest and am now the chief futurist. I've worked with Kathy Wood, the CEO and CIO, um, for 15 years now. Uh, And um, always looking at how the world is going to transform over a medium-term forward basis. So five years forward, what is going to be kind of the, the thing that becomes the thing that drives kind of markets, economic activity, and, and changes the world? Uh, and so that's where I am today.
0: That's very cool. I mean, the, the title Chief Futurist is about as cool as it gets. What do your responsibilities entail day to day and week to week?
2: Well, I think that successfully forecasting the future is more important to markets than it's ever been you know across all of the technology platforms that we focus on it's clear that the rate pace of change is 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 picking up um, you know if you follow the AI space at all it it's it's almost hard to fathom the degree of advances on a week to week basis in terms of state of the art models and and breakthroughs in terms of capability uh, and what that means is that kind of like having a good medium Term forecast is going to infect the underlying, infect or affect, uh, you know, potentially infect incumbents and and affect companies that are leveraged to these disruptive technologies in the marketplace more quickly. Uh, and so, from the beginning at Arc, we focused on you know how can we quantify and and dimension you know the likely five-year forward trajectory of markets and technologies. Uh, and as chief futurist, I, I guide those forecasts, look at how kind of the technology forecasts then are, make sure that they're mutually consistent with each other and dimension how kind of like the compounding nature of technology is going to impact not just the public equity space, but venture, private equity, you know, real estate and and fixed income as well.
0: Amazing. Actually, back in my physics days, I specialized in chaotic mathematics, which sounds like it should have an application. I still haven't found a good application for it. But I think from your description there, what I'm hearing is that there, the realities of today are threaded into the future and you're trying to figure how those threads play out.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think it's very easy to, for people to say, hey, this thing's going to be big and then not do the work to dimension how big mm-hmm. and, and what being big is preconditioned upon. And so from mm-hmm. the inception of ARC, you know our intent has been to take the things that people say are going to be big and actually see how we can and can't sometimes successfully underwrite those futures. And so, you know, just like uh, this year we put out a cost decline in, in January of this year for for the cost to train an AI neural net. And and nobody had done that. And we think it's falling at a rate of two and a half times per year, and that it's we have strong, you know, quantitative reasoning behind um, and, and well-grounded assumptions that suggest it should fall two and a half times per year on a go-forward basis through the end of the decade. Uh, and and so you know, the drama of uh, GPT-3, which is which is a natural language processing model, it would have cost or cost roughly five million dollars to train it once. When it was released, that falling to a five hundred dollar training event over the course of the decade is um, it. It's clearly going to be meaningful in terms of the amount of innovation that happens in the AI space, um, and um, being able to you know say with some degree of certainty, hey, this is the direction that things are going, I think allows us to be yeah, more precise and and discriminatory in terms of which technologies are reasonable to pay attention to and 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 which are just not ready.
0: Mm. Did you call that Winton's Law?
2: No, no. Uh, well, Winton's Law, what is it? I don't know if there's a Winton's Law. We use we use something called Wright's Law to, okay. to tune all of our cost declines. And this is the idea yeah. that for For every cumulative doubling of investment in a particular technology, it tends to fall at a consistent percent rate. I'd say Winton's law is probably that people like to talk about things and not do the work. And you can actually generate a lot of insight by doing the work on medium term technology shifts that often investors across different parts of the capital markets and venture public equities, you know. Just try to like listen for what other people are talking about and say, "Oh, that must be the thing I need to get in front of." Uh, and I think it's very easy to to get off sides of reality if you don't actually underpin kind of those those things that you're excited about or want to be excited about with actual dimensioning of what the impact could be and over what time frame and how it makes sense or doesn't make sense as something to invest in as a tailwind.
0: I can't hear. Uh, I can't hear the title "Futurist" without thinking about Arthur C. Clarke, who, to my mind, was verging on genius. in In 1959, he predicted global satellites for TV broadcasts that that in turn brought like infinite infant, uh, entertainment to anywhere in the world. He envisioned a. a personal transceiver so small and compact that every person would carry one. And I, he actually wrote, the time will come when we'll be able to call a person anywhere on earth merely by dialing a number. Such a device would also include means for global positioning, so no one need ever get lost again. And as I'm sure you know, later then in, in his book, Profiles of the Future, he predicted the advent of such a device taking place in the mid-1980s, which is absolutely unbelievable. And then in 1964, just to keep going, he described a global Computer network on BBC's Horizon programme, saying that by the 21st century, access to information and even physical tasks such as surgery would be accomplished remotely and instantaneously from anywhere in the world using the internet and satellite communication. So I think it's fair to say that for the most part, Arthur C. Clarke foretold with unbelievable accuracy the 50 year timeline of communications. What technologies? do you see as defining the next 50 years? And what big milestones are you kind of watching
2: for? 50 years is way too long at this point in technological development to actually successfully predict and underwrite. And that goes back to my original point, that we're in the second half of the chessboard, meaning things are compounding so quickly that it really, I think, looking beyond a business cycle at this point, Technologically is massively challenging, and it's actually the fact that Arthur C. Clarke was able to make those calls over that time frame is indicative of how much time is compressing from an innovation perspective mm. today. Because mm. the they're in the in artificial intelligence space. So just so first, I'm going to limit the time horizon. I I cannot I. I, my title may be futurist, but um, I think that going beyond a business cycle at this point, your error range on what's going to happen gets much wider than your ability to hit this whatever the central tendency is. Over the course of this decade, what I can say is that future historians, I think, will look back on this business cycle and say, oh my gosh, artificial intelligence was at a critical stage of inflection and going essentially like... A supernova in terms of the proliferation of tools and services that were being built on top of it and the enhancements to human capability that it provides the electrification of drives trains and all mobility systems basically was happening within every context and sector that multiomics or omniomics, we like to call them, the so the ability to read kind of the the data that is contained inside your body and across your body and then operate on it and directly edit it and then and write it with synthetic biology um, was just hitting the sweet spot of being able to actually experiment and deliver treatments to inpatients. That the entire economic coordination function of cryptocurrencies was being adopted, you know, across multiple countries and and displacing the existing world order of kind of fiat currency and Mm -hmm. changing the way capital markets work and that kind of adaptive robotics powered by AI were including reusable rockets were kind of coming into the market and just changing the way in which we can manipulate the physical world and turning it into somewhere something that can be effectively software manipulated rather than hardware manipulated in a way that that transformed economic activity that future historians will look back and say those five things were all happening at the same time that's remarkable amazing this is the new technological boom right Mm. like I, i think across all of those five areas i mentioned we are at a stage of critical inflection where the cost declines are steep they're cutting across sectors they're themselves platforms on top of which other innovations can be built and i think that moving beyond this business cycle and successfully trying to forecast it is incredibly complicated. You talk about it. You talked about chaotic math. It's because mm. these, these platforms, you know, are intersecting and compounding in interesting and meaningful ways that, that, that make it hard to, you know, really say, you know, what is beyond this event horizon it, it, in a way that's, you know, is not totally unbelievable. And it's interesting to me. I there, there is in some ways, I think we're going to become guided by the vision that we have for humanity in a much more profound way than we have previously. Like, so Arthur C. Clarke laying out this vision of this is what technology can do, or Isaac Asimov laying out a vision of this is what technology can do, also informs the the entrepreneurs and investors in terms of this is the direction that technology should go. And, And so kind of like that envisioning of what's possible is important, particularly within the context of capital markets where that controls and can guide how resources get allocated in terms of kind of causing things to develop. Uh, and so the, 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 the kind of like interplay between the imagination or, or the, the depictions of what's possible technologically and the made realness of the technologies in the present is, is really fascinating to me.
0: But that's very higher order thinking. I mean, usually you try and force thinkers to go up to the 40,000 foot level. It feels you've gone outside the ionosphere there. So does that mean that your role as chief futurist is the way you think and assimilate and model data is different To when you were head of research for Arc, like have you gone from forty thousand feet into a reusable rocket and outside of the ionosphere?
2: No, no. I think that from the you know the from the beginning and ongoing, our research has to and is extremely well grounded and by grounded mm. I mean that the the forecasts are justifiable and we try to skew them conservative and then people look at it and say these are insane which you know it signals to us that there's market inefficiency in kind of the the technological trends that that we're underwriting so you know when we first produced our uh, our published our electric vehicle forecast EV volume forecast in in 2017 we were in the teens, millions of units expectation. And at the time, the EIA thought it was a 200,000 to 300,000 unit market out through 2040. Uh, and people said, that's crazy. You know, there's only 100 million cars sold, you know, globally per year. Uh, and at the time, it might have even been 80. Uh, you know, how can you say that that much of the market is going to shift over? And to me and, and to our team, it was obvious we had a good well-tuned battery cost decline, which demonstrated that as kind of like the cost of vehicles starting at the high end drove battery volumes, you would continue that battery cost declining across the entire price segmentation spectrum of the motor vehicle market. And so and so it would be a great, close to that, not quite, I think it's 87 trillion is is our official forecast. So that's on the basis of the cost decline that we've talked about as in these systems are getting much cheaper to train which implies that you'll be able to as a software developer working with ai build a a tool for a knowledge worker i consider you a knowledge worker i consider me a knowledge worker that'll just make us more productive like i I don't know if you have ad reads in in your podcast but think about um you know all of the poor podcasters who are out there having to read these ads uh, in order to generate revenue for their podcast and they do that because you know, a, a host read ad is much more effective than like a third party ad that interrupts the podcast, but there's lots of inefficiency there. They have to record the ads over and over again. You can't like swap in advertisers as they change over or um, more easily promote an upcoming piece of content. So if instead you give an AI tool that can look at your, you know, written body of knowledge and read Kind of like the copy that the advertiser wants to be read, but it comes out in your voice with a few kind of like call it improvisations that a host read ad would do, but you don't have to come up with them because they're just within the context of your style that allows Mm. that ad read. It allows podcasting as a whole to be a much more efficiently monetizable format. Uh, it allows the podcasters who are, uh, you know, enjoying the conversation to spend less time like sitting in the booth being like, okay, now I have to advertise this underwear mm. again. Uh, and <laughs> and it makes them more productive, right? Mm. And so you extend that. So what we've done is said, like, given the rate change of AI, how is the productivity going to improve across all of these knowledge work categories? And we think that there's going to be a two and a half X um, productivity improvement. Uh, for knowledge workers, meaning each each knowledge worker will generate, you know, 150 percent more economic product than they were before, and that gets you to an expectation that. And then we don't think businesses are going to pay like the full amount for that productivity improvement, but instead, consistent with history, like they they pay 25 cents for software that delivers them a dollar in ROI, and yeah. so all of that yields an expectation for. Um, AI software spend that exceeds 10 trillion dollars by 2030 uh, and I think it's 14 trillion is the is the official forecast uh, and then you need to invest in a lot of AI hardware to support that and so you end up in the 14 15 trillion dollar market um, for AI software and hardware and so just for context total global AI spend or it spend today for all of the computers all of the data centers everything it's it's on the order of, of four or five trillion i think it's four Right. And so wow. we think that there's going to be a huge flood of, of spending into AI specific software and hardware, which will, this is how we get to the 80 to 90 trillion in enterprise value accruable to AI hardware and software. But the reason we're going to spend on it is because it's going to generate all of this, you know, economic benefit uh, and, and well in excess of, of what we're spending on it. Uh, and so the, 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 and this is why I think forecasting beyond this cycle is hard because the, yeah. the, you know our expectation is there's going to be a discontinuity in macroeconomic growth effectively that we're going we're at, call it caught three percent real growth per year and we think the exit rate in 2030 will be exceeding seven maybe eight percent because all these technologies are or are, are going to deliver huge macroeconomic improvements and and so the The difference between the consensus forecast and ours in terms of GDP per capita is we think it's going to be 20,000 and consensus is 15. So imagine the entire world is like 30 plus percent richer than anybody anticipates over the course of this business cycle that has, you know, it's huge human impact implications.
0: It's absolutely ginormous.
2: Yeah. And what's interesting about that, it's not it's both consistent with long history and and it's grounded by like i think a lot of kind of reasonable assertions about the direction that technology is going and coupled with you know you should take a look at my twitter feed sometimes people think i'm crazy they think it's totally wrong they think there's is, there is no possible way this is right that it's all smoke and mirrors that actually this this Technological trend that you're talking about was just a flash in the pan, as we were all suffering from the COVID fever dream, and uh, and it's it's you know poof and gone. And yeah. I think that's that's it's certainly reflected in the prices in the market today. But I think it's wildly wrong, and it's going to prove wildly wrong uh, it, it, over over the the course of time. And so the you know people will look back on you know this moment in market history and be like, what were they thinking that they were selling these assets at these prices it's it's you know massively backwards relative to the economic utility of the businesses that are going to deliver these advances
0: mm. but it's you know it's typical human condition to doubt uh, a wild prediction we really as a as a creature can only truly visualize something that we can see or experience at this moment in time and it's the brave such as yourself, who take a position on the future, which rooted back through proper modeling as with the best data you can get today. And I, I think it's, it, <laughs> you see it all the time. You go out and you say, well, I think the future will be A, B, C. And it's the easiest thing to do is to disagree. And that's why I think the best investors take a position, take a view of where the future is going to be, and just stick with it, and and try and ignore the dissenting voices and 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 the noise. You know, one of the the questions as we're on the subject of, uh, while we're on the subject of AI, it's a, very, it's a very simple question, probably difficult to answer, is like, when will AI outinvest humans? When will AI outinvest Warren Buffett? And Will the owner, who will own that AI? You know, how is that, like when eventually that AI system has been trained with vast amount of data, will that be open? Will it be closed? When will we look at uh, uh, Warren's approach as quaint? You know, where does the future of investing lie and the human edge that exists today when we look at AI?
2: You have to specify a time horizon over which that investment is occurring. You know, could I go up against the high frequency trading algorithm and win? No, I'd be like, you know, John Henry, I'd be run over mm-hmm. by the train and it would be through the mountain before I even got to it. And um, and so I think because markets are recursive uh, and, and the typical fault with quantitative investing is any arbitrage opportunity then gets filled and and overfilled because there's a lag cycle between the this is what's ca- Possible on the quantitative investing side, and then this is the frictional change in motivating capital into those quantitative models, where it's like, yes, I, I built a better mousetrap that can invest in the market, but now I have to turn around mm-hmm. and convince the the allocators that hey, my mousetrap is better. And um, you know, by the time they're all convinced, they're over convinced. So there's competitors in the marketplace, so they all flood into you know whatever the newest quantitative algorithm is, which you know well exceeds the point where it was efficient within the actual market itself. Uh, and so I don't know that the, um, I think the the recursiveness of the markets uh, in terms of um, kind of allocating capital, I think makes them a particularly pernicious and challenging problem to solve over reasonable time horizons with AI. Mm. And um, I can't, I think that it, I am loath to underestimate how capable artificial intelligence systems will get over any reasonable time horizon. I think that yeah. you know, like since we put out this forecast on the cost decline that we're expecting in AI, since which was January of this year, almost every incremental news piece that I've seen, not every incremental paper, has caused me to be like, ah, we were too conservative. I thought it, I, I thought it was you know, an extremely, certainly relative to what other people had and had had published, this is um, a very aggressive cost decline expectation for these systems. And, um, you know, like more than twice Moore's law, actually almost three times Moore's law in terms of uh, cost decline rate for for training a neural net is our expectation. Um, but there was just a, a paper published last week where Google used the same technique it used to beat the board game Go, which people, by the way, thought was like a a solution that was two decades out when they published Mm -hmm. it and suddenly it's best in the world. Uh, And so it's a system called reinforcement learning. They use the same agent and and they just recontextualize the problem where you're no longer trying to learn how to win this board game. You're learning how to do matrix multiplication very efficiently. And matrix multiplication is a... um, is kind of like the primitive math that lies at, at the foundation of all of these ai systems and so they trained an agent to on a general purpose basis find extremely efficient ways to to multiply m- matrices of different dimensions that previously was something that had to be kind of like a hand-tuned algorithm like how can i multiply a a a, a Two four by four matrices in in a in in as few mathematical operations as possible. Um, there were there's a 50-year-old heuristic that somebody had come up with for how to do that. And Google bested that and bested not just that one, but basically produced a, a system that can make us efficient across all of the different matrix multiplies that we do. And so it, the fundamental math of AI has just become, you know, less computationally expensive because of this
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required.
2: the degree to which we are both improving the um, our understanding of these model architectures, uh, which is then resulting in state of the art output from these models and using the models themselves to 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 change the, the rate of progress um, suggests to me that that it's 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 going to get wild in terms of capability, that things that like, you know, we thought, oh, well, you know, maybe blue collar work is the first thing that's going to go. As it turns out, graphic artists are, they're not in trouble, but they better use these tools to be efficient at what they're doing, because, you know, I can create a picture of an artificial brain in a office that, uh, is constructive of cogs and wheels with like a cluttered shelf in the background just by typing that prompt into a text prompt. And I get a really interesting drawn thing that is unique to the world. It's never been seen by the world and I'm not a good painter, right? And so previously I would have had to pay a painter to do that. Now I can just get it, not for free. It costs a few pennies, you know, and it costs my own time and creativity to produce it. Uh, and and so the, the like set of things, that are accessible through AI software, I think, is expanding in a really uh, um, dramatic way, uh, and 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 we'll see. And so, net of it, you know, how confident am I that that you know, an AI system doing medium-term investing won't kind of like come into the marketplace and prove to be a, a really efficient way to deploy capital, certainly relative to traditional passive indexing. I don't know. You know, I Mm -hmm. I think that there's uh, a future in which it could uh, enter that marketplace, Um, and I think that the capital allocation game and the recursiveness of it, and the degree to which it is gatekept, and kind of like the the frictional lags between um, uh, actual efficient ideas with how to invest and the actual deployment of those investments within a set of institutions that they actually control most of the money um, is, um, is is probably the, call it fly and the ointment there. And so mm. maybe it happens, it happens within the cryptocurrency and crypto asset space first. I think that would be mm. a way that you could see it actually occur more readily.
0: It's fascinating. And be, before I move on to hit you with my standard closing question, I just want to ask you about the recent enough crypto gold rush, which for me reminded me that there's so many pretenders to a crown for any new technology. So, with you, uh, rather with ARC and you and your process and your team, do you, have you tweaked a radar for fakes? Do you have a process? Do you look at something and just the fact that you study it at such great depth, you can go, "That's real. That's not real." Like I just thought that for crypto, there was so, I think there was twenty nine thousand ICOs over the last three years. You know, you got to look at twenty eight thousand nine hundred of them and go, uh, "Fake." <laughs> Is that just being a grown up? Or is there a process that's more
2: batted down uh, when in your investing life? Well, I think that you know, being able to underwrite technologies and securities and assets um, really requires an ability to be able to learn something and know when you've learned it. And a, mm. I think a big part of that is also being able to teach something. Uh, and so one of the things that we do that's different from other asset managers is, you know, we're really transparent about our system of beliefs and we try to publish the information that we generate internal to ARC. And, you know, we actually put out an EV forecast so you can hold us to account and and we explain how we get there and being forced to understand something sufficient to explain it to somebody else actually, you know, immediately as you're trying to do that highlights the places that you don't understand. And I think it's a good universal mechanism by which to really understand the things that you're investing in or not investing in. Uh, and a lot of the, you know, 28,990 ICOs were um, kind of like supported by white papers that, that weren't actually parsable. Uh, and so, and, 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 and that's like a good script. If you can't understand it, you can't invest in it. I don't Yeah. Know. And, oh, and sure. if, if you can't, if you can, get fooled into thinking you understand something because, oh, I'm going to gloss over this section because it's way too complex for me, but I'm sure they're talking about something important. Then it's as likely that, um, they're one, like actually just BSing or not talking about anything important or two, the person who wrote the white paper thinks they understand it, but they don't understand it either. Uh, Mm. and, and so, um, I think that, you know, approaching things from a perspective of, um, is this something that we can understand sufficient to teach to somebody else to successfully kind of forecast and underwrite? Um, it, it allows us to clip out a lot of, and, and is within a context where we think we have well-grounded, call it top-down or, or higher level understanding of, of what's gonna happen in the market as a whole. So we already know that we probably have an edge in this area um, th- that you know helps us dig in more fertile terrain and you know the the i think that when you are investing in asymmetric markets um being too cynical um is actually the wrong bias and stance as in mm. you know if you think if if you can get 100x return paired mm-hmm. with nine zeros that's an amazing outcome uh yeah. and so um you know the the being able to dimension the potential and capability, you know, and this is true, this is particularly true in, in the venture space, but it's also true in public equities. I mean, I, I think that it's not, you know, was it certain that Tesla would be able to skate across its balance sheet as it was trying to produce the Model 3 when everybody was yelling at us that it, that it was a zero? It, it wasn't certain, but it was probable. And, you know, I always thought they could come to market and sell more equity if they needed to in order to fund themselves if if they got that much in danger but it, you know our dimensioning suggested if they did so then there was a you know massively asymmetric return that was available there and as it turned out that at least as reflected in the marketplace today that was true and at, still again you know now that people say oh well you know robotaxi is too complicated it's impossible um, you know Elon Musk says things that never come true which by the way is Actually, doesn't stand up to the reality of of the things they've delivered. But RoboTaxi itself, we think, is is two thirds the net present value of Tesla. But I think that the actual investing marketplace treats it as a zero. Uh, and uh, so, so again, we think there's an asymmetric return uh, contingent upon them, you know, delivering on the software that they, we think they're going to be capable of. Um, and again, people, the marketplace clearly doesn't believe it. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's where you find opportunities by mm-hmm. understanding something sufficient where you can, you know, really simply dimension it. Like uh, for me, a, a red flag in our models is if, if the model gets too complicated, it, it embeds the ability to, to kind of cheat. You know, if yeah. you have like, eight different inputs that you're using to get to a certain outcome, um, but all of those inputs have like a high degree of uncertainty around them that you get to tweak in whichever direction you want, then you end up in a spot where you can be in whatever outcome you want. And so then you might as well just say, I think this is gonna be great rather than trying to quantify it. And so a lot of the work that we do in, you know, underwriting an asset or underwriting a technology is in figuring out what is the um, minimum number of inputs we can operate with in order to successfully kind of underwrite and understand where this thing is going and And so then, once you stripped it to the very simplest case, then you then you begin to get frustrated. It's like, well, do I know this is here? How can I like figure out what the error bars around are around this particular input and then you layer in complexity to help you understand the variance um, but, but having that kind of like simple distilled, almost like concentrated understanding of what's going to drive or or kill a forecast I think is um both underappreciated and and really important for operating over the time horizons that we operate over.
0: I couldn't agree more. Actually, the market today is just soaked in disbelief for tomorrow's greatest companies. Like there is just a wet blanket of, of pessimism. And the reality to kind of reflect back something you said is that I think those optimistic thinkers with the right temperament currently are set up for future success. So Brett, I'm going to hit you with a closing question, which I'm hope you're I hope you're allowed to answer. You're in fact you're allowed to say anything on this podcast, so you're allowed to answer it with me. But I don't know what's happening backstage at Ark. If you could only invest in five companies to hold for ten years, as opposed to ETFs, what would you choose and why? I have to guess Tesla is one of them.
2: Sure, I mean I, I you know Tesla for sure. Like the yeah. the idea there is is here is a company that has the largest deployed fleet of robots in the world. And actually the economic utility of those robots is going to massively increase if and as they deliver robo taxi capability to that deployed fleet, um, because the utilization will go up magnificently and and the utilization will go up because people will, um, you know, they may stay in the hands of private owners, but those owners will become operators of of essentially taxi services. I think they're more likely to consolidate into like... A series of, you know, think of them as franchises. Uh, and Tesla might even think that they're going to take them onto their own balance sheet themselves. But you go from a model of you're generating one time operating earnings off a of vehicle sale to you're generating ongoing operating earnings off the utilization of that vehicle in kind of a platform fee arrangement, the likes of which Uber or Lyft enjoys. But mm-hmm. on a market that is, you know, 10 to 100 X larger than Uber or Lyfts because you're operating at a price point that prices everybody in. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you ride in Uber for instead of buying a car, imagine you decide I'm just going to Uber the mm-hmm. whole time because it seems convenient. That's the equivalent of buying like a $200,000 to $300,000 car. So not a lot of people can afford that right and and so the 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 change in the addressable market going from from even 250 a mile to a dollar a mile is a 10x change in the addressable market for for point to point mobility So
0: here here in Ireland, the cab driver is going to talk to you all the way there. Well, I know all the way back again. It's like, you know, you can't, you're not left alone with your thoughts. You have to talk to the guy. Uh, Okay. So Tesla, number one, give me a second one to buy and hold for 10 years.
2: Sure. Uh, I think that um, Roku is incredibly well positioned. So Mm -hmm. um, the way in which we um, consume and, and receive content is changing. And the, you know, we're all familiar with this, like we no longer pay for TV, we pay for individual services, Netflix, HBO, etc. Well, as that transition occurred, um, kind of those companies left out a huge monetization slice of the market, which is basically ad, ad supported content. And the reason ad supported content is important is because, you know, again, people like to get things for free or for effectively free. And so if you went all to direct pay where I'm only allowed to watch something, if I pay for it, you would actually reduce aggregate viewership because, you know, people want to pay with their attention as opposed to with their dollars. And so as the on-demand market shifts to an ad supported model that lends itself to there being like probably a, a couple or three like aggregation platforms that sit at that advertising layer. So we think that Roku is standing in front of kind of like the shift to ad supported on-demand video in a profoundly interesting way where, and you know, the way in which the company is priced, it doesn't suggest um, that people believe that this is going to be a durable trend or that they're going to be able to use their um, monopoly position on distribution um, Mm. to take advantage of it. Whereas the, um, what's interesting about advertising monetization is that that it's a non-linear kind of revenue generation engine relative to the size of your audience. So if you double your audience, you don't just get double the revenue, you get something like 4X, the revenue. It's I don't know what exactly the exponent is. Uh, And so it really heavily kind of drives the economics towards there being just a few aggregation platforms. Um, And so, you know, helping kind of change the way in which content is consumed in that way i think is um uh how roku sets itself apart and previously the 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 ability to be essentially a cable box was geographically constrained comcast is is the ability to extend its tentacles is subject to the physical assets it has in place to stitch together households uh Mm -hmm. and roku can operate across geographies and across boundaries on that basis and so uh you know all those Call it cable box based businesses have been really nice cash flow generative businesses for a long time. But the world, you know, content is becoming a, a global business. Uh, and and uh, Roku's position to be the front end of that global business.
0: Brett, you've nearly changed my mind on Roku. Uh, I have to hand it to you. That was convincing. Okay, hit me with number
2: three. Sure. You know, we are not on Zoom right now because this is some weird podcasting platform, but it's very clear to us that the, you know, the world is shifting to basically video comms as the mechanism by which business gets done. Uh, Mm -hmm. And Zoom is both investing in companies that become verbs, I think has historically been an incredibly good investing, you know, rubric. Uh, and it's clear that zooming is a verb. There's a whole generation named after Zoom. And no
0: AI system will ever cop that on, I'll tell you, Brett. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so, and so the 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 yeah, and 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 like being able to like legitimately connect with people. People talk about oh, what's the metaverse strategy? What's the metaverse strategy? Facebook's idea is that we're all gonna you know be kind of disembodied. Now we're gonna have legs, but we're still gonna be like these little cartoon things where. Our, mouths are um, kind of like disjointed from what we're actually saying and and our hands are like little blocks that we swing mm-hmm. around zoom is the enterprise metaverse like the 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 degree to which people can you know make business connections at least at the front end before kind of sealing the deal by going in person is a massive productivity boost to enterprise and um, I think it's clear that we are in a kind of remote or hybrid workforce world on a go forward basis. You look at you know San Francisco real estate, uh, commercial real estate. There's 25 percent vacancy rate. There's there's a reason for that. It's because that you know it turns out it's more efficient to do some kinds of work um, remote and more efficient to do other kinds of work in person. And the the set of enterprises that's going to compete for the crown and win are the ones that are going to figure out how to marry those two things. And to do that, you have to have you know, your entire workforce on a a modern comms platform. Uh, And so, you know, it's um, actually highly cash flow generative. It's um, treated as if all of the, all of the kind of strategic footprint they've built um, over the course of COVID is, doesn't actually accrue to their benefit as if they've uh, essentially fully saturated the market they're going to entry enter. Um, But the, um, I think the next decade, Stands well to to place it amongst the premier kind of enterprise platforms from a kind of distribution perspective, from a comms perspective, and from a how business gets done perspective.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you fully, and in fact, recently became a shareholder for the first time. Hit me with number four, Brett.
2: Sure. So this is uh, similar to Zoom, but but TeleDoc. This is in the Omic oh come space. on, you're kidding me. That's great news. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I lost my I lost my shirt in those, but I'm going to hold for another ten years. See what happens.
2: Well, I I think it you you don't have to survey many people to tell that kind of the U.S. health experience is is remarkably broken. Um, but uh, the, the way to improve it is actually to create more touch points between um, primary care and patients in the U.S. And and right now there's so much both the monetization side of that and and then the friction and getting a patient in front of a health professional is so high um, that it results in you know, patients instead decide, I'm going to try to go direct to the specialist. And so then the oncologist whose time is incredibly valuable is, um, you know, the patient gets onto their calendar to talk about their fear that they might have cancer, you know, even if they don't like, so, so you actually have a a lot of wasted resource around the fact that there's not a good intelligent front end experience for consumers in their healthcare lives. And so um, the, the clear um, mechanism by which to, to improve that is to provide um, kind of uh, the healthcare system with data uh, and and to use data to inform the way in which consumers go on their healthcare journey. And teledoc, as, as the front end provider for kind of consumers' um, healthcare uh, is well-placed to do that. And then you combine that with um, uh, kind of a shift to value-based um care yes, by which yeah. they're getting reimbursed so instead mm. of you know that a lot of the health system in the u.s is on the basis of how many things do you do to the person that's how much you get to charge uh, yeah so you can understand what happens there i go into the doctor they're like hey we want to snip off this like little skin tag on your ear that'll be five hundred dollars and it'll mm. be in reimbursable and so then i'm like oh i guess so you know even though it's it's probably not <laughs> something that should be insurance yeah. reimbursed and the yeah. doctor advocates for it because that's how they get paid you know, that's yeah. just the the incentive misalignment is, is really, um, you know, doesn't lead to good outcomes. And so, um, you know, Teladoc has the data to deliver that they can that they can deliver better health outcomes. And now kind of like the commercialization engine is set up for them to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, one more thing I'd add is that the, um, you know, a lot of the noise in the marketplace has been on the basis of kind of venture-funded startups coming in and, uh, and essentially using a loophole in regulations that opened up through COVID to prescribe, um, you know, ADHD meds and, and uppers to people over the air. And, and so that's like muddied the, the water in terms of kind of um, being able to actually deliver patients talk therapy efficiently, which Teladoc does without doing this kind of like pay-for-pill model over video uh and so as that shakes through and i think you know there there will be a, a regulatory shake out there likely on the on the startup side or at least that rule will get un, unraveled um you know that side of the business which people have been focused on because it's the metrics are very easy to see um should wash out of the financials in a beneficial way
0: right brett that was fascinating and a wonderfully comprehensive answer so hit hit me with your fifth and final pick to hold for 10 years sure Coinbase. Coinbase is... Now, that's surprising to me. Is it? Well, first
2: of all, I mean...
0: Well, firstly, I haven't done deep research on Coinbase, Brett. I looked at it long enough for me to just have an aversion. And that aversion was based on the fact that the crypto state of play hasn't stabilized to a point where I believe that the business model for coinbase is certain now i know it's financials are good but i have not looked at where i haven't taken a view of where it's going to be in 10 years and i have it like inextricably connected to the heat that was in the general crypto space 18 to 24 months ago so when that cooled down and as a self-proclaimed doubter of not crypto but crypto as a at the volumes at which we were seeing. For me, it was was analogous to to the dot-com bubble. In in 1999, there was tens of thousands of web businesses of which 90-something percent were eradicated. At that point, I looked at Coinbase and said, yes, they are the leader in their field, but their field is still in total uh, disarray. So I stood back and just left it there. In fact, of the five stocks you've discussed, the one I'm least qualified to go deep on is Coinbase. So I'm going to shut up and hand it over to you.
2: Well, first of all, there's a tailwind in cryptocurrencies and crypto assets. I think that, you know, the revolution in money that Bitcoin is, I think, going to dominate is going to be one of the defining um, macroeconomic developments of this age. That, um, you know, if you think about the fact that there are hundreds of currencies out there because of the um, the 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 lines that we draw on maps is is. Really economically inefic- inefficient and, and, and in some ways bizarre, and there's strong kind of market pressure to erode um, kind of the monopoly on money that that um, polities have. Uh, and so the and you don't need to make aggressive assumptions about the degree to which that changes in order to underwrite a very high price appreciation for Bitcoin itself within the smart contracting space, which I see as a totally separate revolution um, mm-hmm. that. Been, was catalyzed by the introduction of Bitcoin into the marketplace, but where it's unlikely that Bitcoin will play a primary role. And, you know, maybe it's Ethereum, maybe it's, you know, the other level one um, that are being positioned out there to um, kind of provide that future. But it's clear to me that kind of digital ownership and smart contracting is going to spit off a whole slew of business models and change the way in which financial operations happen in the economy. Uh, and so, you combine those two tailwinds, I think our official forecast out there is you're going to have on the order of $40 trillion in um, attributed value to um, blockchains by 2030 up from I don't know where we are today, but I think we're around a trillion less probably. Um, and so you have um, the, the realization of all of that economic value is going to create a layer of service providers or create the opportunity for a layer of service providers to facilitate people's use of and, and exploitation of those two simultaneous revolutions. Uh, and because of the, um, the nature of the, the crypto protocols, it lends itself to actually much more vertical integration than currently exists within the financial services entity, and so you can think of Coinbase as being a combination between the kind of like the investment bank and the exchange and the custody agent, and um, and potentially providing um, kind of like ongoing call it asset management services or or you know staking as a service in some way is um, you know helping to secure the networks and then, then take a platform rent for doing so. Um, and so the the um, kind of like combined um, set of services that Coinbase can provide to the market, uh, I think it's going to be uh, very economically valuable. Okay. The counter arguments to Coinbase is that, hey, they're generating an abnormally high fee um, relative to trading volume and that fees are going to come under compression because of all the competition from ftx and kraken and everybody else who's trying to do this stuff and um and so then you know yes their financials look good today but they're going to look bad tomorrow uh Mm -hmm. and um actually we've underwritten the position with like a really aggressive fee compression expectation um but the rate of growth in the underlying market and their ability to kind of innovate and deliver um you know, much needed kind of UI improvements to the end consumer to allow them to access these technologies and actually use them in their daily life um, is um, what drives the investment case.
0: Brett, right. five fantastic ideas there and wonderful answers. And I think, thank you very much for spending so much time and being so selfish with your knowledge this afternoon. And um, I'm looking forward to speaking to you again soon.
2: All right, cheers. Thank you much, Emma.
0: Thanks, Brett. Bye-bye.